This is a tripod broadcast. You're listening to Barnhill Outdoors Podcast. Just three average, raw, relatable hunters sharing tactics, tips, and stories. No scripts. So just sit back and enjoy the reliving of outdoor memories and their pursuit for a new adventure. All right, everybody, welcome to Barnhill Outdoors Podcast. Uh, this is Rick, and we're here for another episode. Uh, as always, we got Corey and, <laughs> and Brett along with us, and we got a special <laughs> guest tonight, guys. Yeah. Uh, we got Brian Plows uh, with us tonight. Welcome, Brian. And uh, Thanks, guys. Good to be here. Yeah, we're glad to have you. Um, this is also our first, well, second attempt at a uh, yeah. video cast as well, yeah. so uh yeah, we're gonna hopefully this one's better than last time. <laughs> <laughs> the first attempt was terrible. Yeah, it was bad. Yeah, it was yeah. really bad. Well, we're learning. So uh, again, Brian, thank you. And it's all part of the learning process. I mean, I've been on a couple podcasts. I'll be honest; I don't really love doing them. <laughs> I don't like hearing myself. I don't like watch myself or anything like that. But uh, they all, the ones that are successful, all started pretty bad. Look at Joe Rogan; he, he just started with a random idea and a microphone and. Now his podcast is probably the most powerful media in North America. We're second. We're pretty close. Right behind <laughs> yeah. him. Yeah, look at right when you're on Google you're Podcasts, him. you see Rogan and Barnhill Outdoors right there. <laughs> pretty close. So basically the same thing. You're gonna push us He's over. He's got there, a few more views, but not many. Not too much, no. <laughs> Definitely. So the first time I met you, let me think about this. Oh, we were in Illinois. Yep. Um the name that you shall not speak. With a name we shall not speak. <laughs> <laughs> and if I do remember, you were filming Nate Lee back in those days. Yep. And uh, I think you may have had to borrow my camera at one point in time. Yeah. Yeah, I did. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> just filmed a kill and we're all hyped up, excited. And he goes down to check for blood and I'm taking the, putting every, packing everything away, put it in the backpack put the rope on it, go to lower it down. But I didn't make sure there was a second knot. And as I'm lowering the bag, the whole thing slips out and falls to the ground and snaps his camera in half. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> I was like, yeah. I'm going home. And that was about the end of my career. <laughs> no, I if you film little- enough hunts, I mean, things are going to happen. Um, it's just part of it. Uh, I've had cameras that i've dropped um before i was doing it for a profession out of a tree and it is the mo- the scariest thing well other than your cell phone out of the tree <laughs> that you'll do your heart really sinks it yeah sucks. mine did i was like well there goes there goes that that was fun <laughs> <laughs> that uh the, the best part about it i think in that whole time for me was the the rats <laughs> Where I had to sleep, there was rats that were crawling through my bag. Yeah, that wasn't uh, the best location for a little while. So (laughs) that was my home. (laughs) Yeah, I know. Yeah. Yeah. That That, that goes back to the start. Well, not really the start of filming for me, but kind of the start of doing it professionally for outdoor TV when I was filming there in Illinois. I actually started... We had the bedrooms done when you were there, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. So when I first went there, those bedrooms weren't done. And part of what I was doing besides filming was I was helping renovate that apartment. And the actual uh, studio part that we were still working on in the front, there was like a uh, 
one of those couches you pull down into a bed. And that's actually what I slept on every night. There there was a toilet, but there was no shower or anything like that. I got a gym membership to um, actually go so I could take a shower every day or wow. every day that I could get to the gym. Like, I really wanted it back in those days and i was doing <laughs> i was doing whatever i could to make a living in yeah outdoor television yeah yeah we uh so. we had we had very similar dreams and aspirations around the same time back up a couple years before that i graduated college with a digital cinema arts degree and then uh had an internship and was doing some editing for some shows uh one of the shows was natural born for the jury brothers Mm-hmm. But then I decided I want to get in the field and start filming, so I started doing that as well. And uh, only a couple of years later, being on the road, I I end up quitting. <laughs> that's where my that's where my story kind of stopped. But uh, that was back in what fifteen. So that's where my yeah. story stopped, and that was basically when yours really got started, I guess. Yeah, uh, as far as filming on outdoor television, kind of the start actually when I was. 19 was when I first did my first uh, show that went on national television. There was a little um, block on the Angel 2 network. It was called the Hunt Channel. And they literally just had a couple hours every day that they bought. Um, And there was a a local game call show that a bunch of guys were involved in. And they didn't really have an editor. And they wanted to film um, some different things. So I started filming some goose hunting for them. And this was while I was in college, um, working at Bass Pro, going to college. And then in all my spare time, I was filming my hunts anyway. So I went and filmed a bunch of goose hunts with them, edited them up. And that was my first couple episodes that went on quote unquote national TV. I mean, it was a a dish network only channel, but it went across the country. So, yeah. Um, and then it was after that, that I ended up in Illinois with you, but I started filming, stuff back when i was 13 is when i started um and bought my first camera so that would have been 2007 ish and um it how do i want to put it i grew up obsessed with hunting i grew up in upstate new york right so you couldn't hunt until you're 12 years old um and then you had to be accompanied by an adult but i grew up going with my dad before i could shoot anything and watching dvds um and stuff like that because i actually didn't have television growing up my father canceled it he thought it was bad for me oddly enough that didn't work out i ended (laughs) up working in it but um i knew pretty early in life that's what i wanted to do and pretty much decided no matter what i was going to make it happen so bought a camera 13 years old and just started filming nonstop. um a lot of deer hunts a lot of turkey hunts a lot of my friends um, not a lot of me in front of the camera, actually. <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, but that's, that's the problem. I think for me specifically, that was my biggest issue. This is like, this was my dream, you know, and we filmed a lot of the same thing, you know, when we were, when we were younger, but I wanted to follow this until I started being behind the camera so much, I couldn't mm-hmm. actually hunt. And that, that started to get really hard for me because I wanted to pull the trigger. Right. And that's uh right. that's, that's a, that's a hard one for cameraman. That's the thing when you're doing this as a profession, um, you don't get to hunt a lot. So I actually am not in the field very much anymore. I probably do 
40 to 50 days in the field right now, which isn't a lot. I spent most of my time in the office editing, but I still only spent one day bow hunting this year. Um, but that's kind of a choice too, of just maintaining a, a lifestyle outside of hunting. Um, but when you're traveling all the time, like back when I was burning it down, I was on the road about six months out of the year. You, you don't have time to hunt cause you're making your living filming someone else hunt. So if you're hunting, you're not making money. That's just the reality. Yeah, and that's, that was another reason why I ended up quitting too. Cause I mean, I was married at that time and mm-hmm. we were traveling, you know, a couple months out of the year. Then I was filming for another company and going all across the country doing Comic-Con promos and I was gone all the time and the money was not great unless I was in the field. Like you said, you know, the travel time and stuff like that wasn't getting, getting anything done. So that's another reason why I ended up quitting. But I mean, he's not kidding. You're, you're gone all the time. (laughs) Yeah. A lot of, a lot of, a lot of the windshield time. Oh, 100%. So I think the longest stint I ever did, um, was one of the first years that I was doing avian X TV. I went on the road right, right around March 15th. Um, because that's when turkey season starts in the south. We're going to Alabama. And I really didn't stop until May 31st, which was when turkey season was ending in New York. And in that time frame, I know I went to like 15 different states and a couple of them twice. Wow. So you are burning it down. But yeah. that that was tiring. At the end of that, you are absolutely exhausted. It It is fun. Like it's what you dream of. Um but it beats you up. <laughs> it really does. Yeah. That's a fast pace. Yeah. And Brian, so. ex- explain to some folks, because like I want to see the behind the scenes stuff, you know, so you see the people in front of the camera all the time, but I want to know the stories of the people behind the camera, the people putting in the long hours editing and uh, explain to them when you get back from hunting, you're not done. Like the, the people that are in front of the camera get to go to bed. That's not the case for the camera guys. No, not at all. So, Basically, um, if you're a camera guy, let's say you're going on a five-day hunt, and that five-day hunt starts Monday the 1st and goes until Friday the 5th. Well, and let's say that's 1st of October. Well, you're probably traveling the 30th of September. You're hopping on a plane, and you need everything that you're going to survive on for that next week in your bag. And if you're a freelancer that's doing this professionally, you're probably actually booked from October 1st until about December 20th because you want to be home for Christmas. So you're packing everything in your bag you can to live for the next three months. Um, Once you get it at the location that you're going to be filming, you're probably immediately unpacking your stuff, throwing your batteries and your cards and your camera. And if you're not filming location shots, you're figuring out your first scene for your host or your hunter when they show up, if they're not already there. Um, from then on out, you're basically, uh, you're the storyteller. Yes, the host is who is in front of the camera and who is narrating it, so to speak, or who people are watching. But if you don't press record, if you don't put things in focus, if your audio is not right, no one's going to see it. You're the storyteller. You are literally in control of everything someone's going to see. If you have an idea of a scene of something that would be entertaining, you have to bring it up to your the host. You kind of direct it and work with them to make it happen. And at the end of the, those five days, you're hoping that they've shot an animal and you're coming out with um, some sort of episode. The worst position I see field producers get in 
is actually when they roll in the first day, uh, they could be at an outfitter that says, hey, this deer's coming in to this spot. Let's quick get get your gear. Let's go get in the stand. and We're going to shoot him. And lo and behold, they kill him. Well, guess what? That's awesome. You killed a deer, but there's no story. There's, yeah. there's nothing to it. Yeah. So did you achieve your end goal? Yeah, absolutely. But as far as storytelling, you've got enough for one segment of an outdoor TV show. Do you think you that's have why? Someone showing up and shooting a deer. You see what I mean? Like you've got three more segments to fill out. Do you think that's why they pass a lot on like day one, day two, day three, and then they finally shoot one on day four, even if they have the opportunity? Uh, yes and no. I mean, I'll, if a shooter buck comes out, most of us are going to shoot it. And if you're there as a field producer, it's kind of your job to go, hey, we need to film some other things and do some other things here to create a story. Mm. Um, just that will be an entertaining episode. I mean, most of the places you're going, you're able to do a lot of background story on where you're hunting, why you're hunting there, the type of deer they have there, etc. That can help fill up that time. Um, there's also the old method that you can just put a deer on screen for 20 minutes and every five minutes hit a commercial break and let it <laughs> walk in nice and slowly. But let's be honest, as much as I love big deer, after the first 30 seconds of watching it, I'm going, okay, let's shoot this thing. Yeah. Um, so most of the time, like if I'm there with a host and they shoot a deer on the first day, we're just going to try to build some other background story around it and go that route. But that's all field production. And I actually, the way I look at it is if a guy's just there to press record and film the deer kill, and there's some people that are really good at doing that, but not capturing the story. They're more of just a cameraman than a field producer. Sure. A field producer is going to be the guy that works really hard to build the rest of that story. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, that's that's probably, for me, that was the part that I struggled with the most was building that story, mm -hmm. having that creativity. Like the technical stuff, I could get it all figured out. The focus, the exposure, you know, even the editing side. But as far as building the story and having that creative, like, brain like that's something i never really had so when i went through all through school to do this it was mainly just to be able to physically you know the technical stuff and yeah. i just i always struggle with the actual creativity yeah. of it now brian when you when you uh create a story do you have like a general template that you do that's similar in nature i hit it again there every, it is every episode <laughs> every episode he hits that boom mic we joke about it every time. Uh, oh i think i just hit mine a second ago um <laughs> Actually, yeah, that's something I've been trying to push on a lot of field producers who are really good to a lot of really good creative field producers are very unorganized. The most creative people I know are very unorganized, um, but they it's that side of the brain. Stuff. Yeah, it, it really is. So one thing that I've kind of developed and it's I say developed, it's literally just putting notes down, but it's having all your segments organized out and your scenes organized out. So I know, and I started doing this five, six years ago when I'm in the field, I'm taking mental notes of what's happening, what my content is and what basically I have left to shoot in order to check off an episode. Rather we have an encounter with this deer or this turkey or this bear or whatever. Rather we did an interview with the guide or the host or I've shot this B-roll here to go over a voiceover segment here. I was always keeping that in my head. And then when I started editing a lot of other people's episodes, 
I would have to sit down and organize it. And I couldn't organize it as well in my head. So I'd have to jot it down on paper. Well, that just became a habit when I'm out there sitting in a tree stand to go in my notes. Okay, segment one, scene one. Obviously, it's us showing up at the location and presenting the location like every other outdoor TV show. <laughs> scene, scene two, it's this. Scene yeah. three. And it just became so much simpler. And to be honest, it makes life in the field easier because at the end of day three, if you shoot something, you can say, hey, we need to shoot something quick doing this or, hey, we're good to go. We just need to kill a deer or whatever right. you're there to hunt. Yeah. Um, it really does make life a lot easier. but. Implementing that in field, having people say, okay, yeah, I'm going to make myself do that versus sit here and look around when nothing's coming. <laughs> it's hard to get people to do it sometimes, but it, it does make things a lot more organized. Yeah. Do you ever Did run that in... answer your question? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I was, uh, I'm also curious, like, do you ever find that to be almost too formulaic at times and it maybe uh, reduces the yeah. amount of creativity you can get to and... Well, yes and no. Um, it can be because when you put all that down on paper and notes like that and you come back to the studio and you start editing, you can look at it and go, hey, I need to take this scene that's in segment three and it's going to be really good over here in segment two. Um, but that's part of editing. So you just move that scene over there and then you're good to go. I mean, it. If you're someone that's looking at that paper and you feel like that you can't stray from it, yeah, it's going to limit your creativity. But if you think that's law, you're probably not really creative anyways. (laughs) But a lot of editing sometimes is taking different pieces and moving them around, in my opinion anyways. Some Some people think uh, the exact way it happened to the exact, like, no, this happened on day three. So we have to show it in that order is the only way to do it. But that's not the way most good TVs made. Is that per client, though, or they leave that creative? Uh... Normally, the clients leave that uh, kind of freedom to us. But, I mean, your clients are going to look over everything and check the box, whether it's good or it's not. And if there's something they don't agree with, you're, um, you're going to change it. It's not like you're you're lying by doing anything like that. You're just going, hey, on day two nothing happened and it's really boring so we might talk about it for 15 seconds but otherwise that footage hits the cutting room floor yeah i think at least for me depending on who you're working for i mean i was just doing mostly freelance stuff but everyone has their different vision of how they want their show to be i mean and as a as a videographer you have to be able to adapt to that so some somebody has an idea of what their shots want to look like some are more cinematic than others. Some they don't really care as long as you get the kill on shot. So there's like an equal medium and then you take what you learn from each one, but then you go to the next guy and you're like, okay, so you start doing what you're used to doing. They're like, no, 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 that's not a, that's not at all what I'm looking mm. for, you know? So for me, that was something that I had to learn was that everybody's different. They have a different vision. And just because you did this with the last guy doesn't mean the next guy wants it. And I mean, you probably dealt with that as well, but I think you're more, you have a little bit different, um, job title now than what you did then so it's probably a little different for you yeah so technically here at sub seven i'm the production manager so i do do a lot of our editing and like i said i do spend 40 or 50 days in field but 
in the outdoor space, we do five different TV series, I think, which adds up to about 52 episodes a year, give or take. Wow. Um, so part of my job is just overseeing all of that. If I'm not editing, who is, how that story is going, if we need to change things, are they editing it on time, et cetera. There's a lot of work behind the scenes to create uh, 52 episodes of outdoor TV. Yeah. yeah which and we do things outside of the outdoor space. Um, we're doing a lot for Academy Outdoors for a while. Um, we're doing a, a pretty cool series right now too. That's um, it's called American Plumber Stories. Basically, just highlighting the trades and trying to promote the trades. So we do anything production wise, but our bread and butter is outdoor TV. Say it sounds diversified. We we are because um, we're just a a normal production company. I mean, we'll literally do anything. Um. It's if you're a general contractor, you're going to build some houses, probably some houses you're going to do some remodels on. You know what I mean? You're you're only going to be so picky. Um, and production's a surface based business. So, what was the original question? Because I feel like I got off track. Uh, what was it? <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's see. It I was, was thinking too it formulaic. Was different uh, yeah. different clients expecting different things. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. We kind of rabbit trailed, I think, so, within that. That's fine. All of us. Yeah. It's, it's yeah. open form. Open we're not. Open form. Yeah. We're not. We're not tied to anything. It's, we don't have a checklist. Yeah. <laughs> oh, you're good. So, with so I'll use the five we have for example right now. Um, Swarovski Optics Quest is one. So we'll go on one end of the spectrum there. And the deep opposite of the spectrum that we're just doing post-production on would be Pigman. Two very different shows. Extremely different. Um, One's pretty proper. One is not. Pigman. And, uh, yeah. (laughs) Now, and he's a lot of fun. He's a lot of fun, to be honest. But uh, you're not going to edit them the same way. You're not going to show the same things. Um, You're not going to see a whole lot of blood on Swarovski. That's just... Not the style of the brand. It's not the style of the show. Hmm. You're going to see a lot of blood on Pigman. That's the style of the brand. That's the style of the show. He's very in your face. He's very fast paced. I don't want to say he's not cinematic, but the cinematic stuff isn't how his show flows. He's going to be out there shooting a bunch of hogs, heavily his deer, what have you. And um, that's just what he does. Where like, Swaro is going to be a more cinematic show. We're going to show uh, the locations, the culture. We're, it's just paced differently. Yeah. So they're both good shows, but they appeal to two different people in our niche. Not everyone that watches Pigman is going to like it. Not everyone that watches Swaro is going to like right. it. But yeah. this person over here is going to like it, and this person over here is going to like it. So even though the hunting is kind of a, a niche space, there's still a lot of viewers out there. You know, some people said can't the word stand. Pace. <laughs> we talked about pacing. pacing in the last episode. Yeah. <laughs> so ah, see, pacing, it is yeah. in the industry. It's you call it pace, pacing. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I think I said space. That was just my speech impediment. <laughs> but uh, so uh, I got off track again. But, I'm sorry. Um, oh, it's hard. Yeah, those are just two very different shows, and even though um. It's a niche space. I'll use turkey hunting for example. A lot of people don't like to watch turkey hunts. They actually don't Mm -hmm. do that great on outdoor television. I love them, but I love turkey hunting. But I'm not everyone. I'm just this one person over here in the little niche inside the niche. Hmm. So, 
I know you're at sub seven now. I know you've spent a little bit of time with Avian X, um, and I know where you and I worked together for a while. But bef- like before that and in between that, I don't know a whole lot about your yeah. your story. So I'll just start from the beginning, man. All right. So um, yeah, I'm the production manager at Sub Seven now, but and I'm 29 years old. But my filming journey really started about 16 years ago. Um, I think I was about 13 when I bought my first camera and basically I knew I wanted to do outdoor television for a living and I wasn't going to let anything stop me. Um, I say that I filmed a lot of bad hunts to start (laughs) like a lot. (laughs) There's a lot of, uh, double punching of record, um, filming a kill and not a recovery and a lot of that. But I was a 13 year old kid with no one to teach me, you know? Um, I was filming my buddies. They were filming me sometimes, and it was a learning experience. So I would have been about 15 when I got hooked up with a group in upstate New York called Venatic Outdoors. So that was actually the first DVD project I was working on. Um, That would have been 2009. So DVDs were hot. You know what I mean? Um, You could make money. A lot of the outdoor shows were booming. And when you walk down those aisles, there was probably three booths selling some sort of DVD and a lot of jerky makers, too. Um, Those those were my favorite. Taking a step back, it's kind of weird. I got to where I got um, when I was watching outdoor television, so to speak. I was always watching on DVDs because I actually didn't have television as a kid. Um, when I was a little kid, I had it. My dad thought I watched it too much. So he cut the cord and that was the end of that. So Venatic Outdoors was the first DVD project. And that was just all upstate New York guys filming, trying to get started, so to speak. And there's actually a few guys, uh, from that, that do work in the outdoor space now. Um, I believe Cleed Spooner, who was one of the original partners in that little group or hunting team, whatever you want to call it then, is, um, producing a couple shows now um but after that i worked with a couple guys on something that was called shared obsession tv then none of that ever went to television to my understanding but we're doing some webisodes stuff like that um and then when i was 19 years old and in college um i was hooking up with a let me say, I was 19 years old in college. <laughs> I was, uh, so, so, some of my friends. Oh yeah. So some of my buddies were actually, um, helping out a small turkey call company and waterfall call company. And they had a, a TV show on a small block called, uh, the angel two network. And the small block was the hunt channel. And um, that's basically just four or five hours a day. They would show hunting shows. But that was my first national show, so to speak. They weren't good, (laughs) in my opinion, for what I'm doing now. But it was a learning experience. And to be 19, I had no formal education on what I was doing. Um, I had learned video editing mainly by myself. When I was 16 years old, I took one video editing class. And then in college, I took a Photoshop class. That's really the only formal education in media I ever got. Most of what I learned was from other people and just trial and error. And then 
what you can find on the internet, et cetera. Um, but most of what I learned was from other talented people who I was fortunate enough to take under my, put me under their wing. Um, but yeah, for some reason they decided to put a 19 year old in charge of a TV show and I was kicking episodes <laughs> out. Um, and then after that, I, uh, it would have been 2014, um, that I was able to go out to Illinois and start filming for the name we shall not mention <laughs> Yes, and, uh, basically <laughs> do a show that was on the outdoor channel. And, um, that's where I met Corey the next year, but. The thing was, I was still in college, so I took all my finals early um, to wrap up my associate's degree and then traveled out to Illinois. Through, I had this little red Chevy Cobalt. I basically threw tree stands and everything I could in the back seat and drove out there. And from there, just started filming and learning and working in the field. So I had planned to continue my education, go somewhere like a SUNY Plattsburgh or Ithaca College. I had good uh, media programs if I could convince them to accept me. I wasn't the best student. I was always hunting. But um, <laughs> it just when that opportunity came to get the, the in the field experience for what we do in outdoor television, I saw that as being more beneficial and it paid off for me. There's a lot of things I could have learned in the classroom that would have been good technical knowledge, but for guerrilla style shooting, field production, they don't teach that in a classroom. Um, and what we do in outdoor TV is guerrilla style video production. It's reality TV. You need to be able to pick up a camera, get everything, your exposure correct, your white balance correct, point it at someone. Have your audio correct and roll. And these are people that are going to go from a whisper to yeah. screaming really loud because they just killed a giant buck. And you got to be on your toes and have everything rolling. I mean, every movement you make, someone is going to see and interpret, interpret in some sort of way. So it better be right. That's outdoor videography in a nutshell. Mm. How many times did you get blamed for spooking a deer for moving? <laughs> well, well, if we talk about the name that shall not be mentioned yeah. a lot, a real lot. Yeah. But um, there is that stereotype that, you know, it's always the camera guy's fault. But when you're hunting with some good hunters, et cetera, that instead of just wanting to blame a camera guy because they have a narcissistic personality, <laughs> um, they will actually pay attention to what is going on and look the scenario over and they might go, well, maybe it was this, or maybe it was this, et cetera. Um, when I was doing the turkey hunting stuff, there's a lot more of that. It wasn't just looking at the camera and always saying, oh, it was that, that scared. They would look at it a little more objectively, but we also filmed some badass turkey hunts because of that. Um, I learned a lot in those days of the right ways to, hide a person, a camera, and get away with murder, basically, and have turkeys right up at someone's footsteps and be filming it over the shoulder, and I'd be able to do whatever movements I needed because of the way I was covered up and get away with it with something that we look at as having some of the best eyesight in the woods. <laughs> so the camouflage, how you brush yourself in, where you are in the shadows, it all really matters and makes a huge difference. Yeah, Corey so you, and I. You, sorry. Go ahead. Go I ahead. Say, Corey and I, before this podcast, we're talking about the pressure 
how it's greater on the cameraman than it is for the hunter. Like worst case scenario, the hunter misses the bird or misses the deer. But for like the cameraman, he has to make sure, like you mentioned, everything has to be perfect. You know, the mm-hmm. audio, the white balance, all that. Getting the bird in in frame and in focus. And, you know, if it's a deer, you want to see that arrow flying through the air and right into the pocket. Like there's so mm-hmm. much riding on the cameraman's shoulders. 100%. So it's obviously, as a hunter, it's a sinking feeling when I shoot at a deer and I miss it. I've done a lot of that. <laughs> but like if you shoot over the back of a deer or just under it, whatever, when you know you pull miss, that's a sinking feeling, right? Yeah. When you're a cameraman and you have to tell the hunter, you can't shoot him, I'm not on him. That's not good. Yeah, <laughs> it happens though. It's part of it. So, and if you're there to make outdoor television, they're going to go, okay, well, let's figure it out. Because that's what you're there to do. It's your job. So rather it's if something's wrong with your camera and you need to get it fixed. If um, you're out of light, that's part of the game. And that happens a lot to people. If it's behind a tree and you can't get your camera arm in the right location, whatever that scenario may be, you have to figure it out. And potentially they might not shoot that animal or potentially they might just shoot it anyway. So it's, it, <laughs> yeah. Depending who you're with, right. it's it's kind of up in the air. But, uh, yeah, that's that's part of the job, and the pressure's on. And um, there's actually a time, and I don't really tell many people this story, or I haven't, um, when I was in Illinois, and, you know, I was young, and the person I was working for was kind of intimidating. And it was a really big show for me in a to me, it was a big moment in my life, and it was one of the first archery hunts I was going on with him in the year. We were hunting a Boone and Crockett deer that had been crossing a river mm-hmm. in a certain location, and for whatever reason, I had one of those moments where it was like, I've worked really hard to get to this point, and I don't want to f*** it up. And I got extremely nervous, like I almost like shaking before there was a deer coming in, nervous. And I had to have a conversation with the host, and surprisingly enough, they did have some compassion in that moment and calmed me down a little bit. But being a 20-year-old kid and seeing that stuff come to fruition, and, and I grew up in upstate New York. We didn't have 170-inch deer to hunt. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, when we shot a 110-inch deer, the county knew about it. Yeah. So to be there filming something that big, it, for whatever reason, that day I had me shook. Now, I've filmed a bunch of them since then. But it's just, in that moment, I was nervous, yeah. really nervous. And if that deer came in, I was going to screw it up. But one thing they told me that resonated with me was, you can't screw it up. You need to just take control. But if you're filming and you know it's not good, tell me because I won't shoot that deer because that's not what we're here to do. Yeah. I have a pretty similar story. I was so. actually filming up in Iowa. Same kind of thing. I was pretty new to it. And, you know, we're in Missouri and, and we don't have you know, huge deer like that either. And they're, they're better now. They've had some restrictions, like four point restriction laws and stuff on the bucks. So they've definitely gotten bigger over the years. But at that time, I mean, you don't see a 150 inch deer. So I'm in Iowa filming and same thing happens This 150 inch deer walks in mm-hmm. and you just see that the camera, I'm just like, sh- you know, just shaking. <laughs> you can just see that. Yeah. I mean, I was so nervous because I had never seen a buck that big at that time. And trying to get on the camera, and he wasn't even going to shoot it. He was going to pass it. And I'm like, how do you not going to shoot this deer? But the, he was chasing one that was like 200 inches. And I mean, 
It was just a yeah. Yeah, I, I'm the same way. I I messed it up big time. <laughs> <laughs> so, that depending where you're coming from, that's part of the learning process. Let's be honest. A lot of people that live in a lot of locations around the country don't get to hunt the type of deer we see on TV. And depending who you're filming, if you're filming at Lee Lukowski or Mark Drury, you're hunting some of the biggest whitetails in the country. That's almost a guarantee. Um, and like you said, that 160 inch deer may be the biggest deer you've ever seen, but it's a three-year-old and he's chasing a 220. So <laughs> it's just the perspectives are totally different sometimes. And a lot of people look at it as they're spoiled. Well, guess what? They did a lot to earn that. And they decided that's what they were going to do. They, they went out, they had a goal, they succeeded, they got that goal. They put a management goal in place, which is successful. I'm not saying that everyone can do it by any means, but don't bash someone who was growing up the same we did. I'll use Mark and Terry Drury for an example. They used to shoot little deer back in the 80s when you're watching those VHS mm -hmm. tapes. Oh, yeah. They just eventually decided that they wanted to do something different, and it worked for them, and they have a lot of fun doing it. And at the end of the day, it's about conservation. They probably have a really healthy deer herd. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, what, the worst thing we can do, and we do it all the time as hunters, is we fight amongst each other. And it's not good. And it makes us look really, really bad to people that are, I like to call them, in the middle ground. Um, I'll use a, an example of when hunters kind of, we put our black eye on our community a lot. And it was probably four or five years ago now. There was the overlays you could put on your Facebook profile picture, and PETA had one of the overlays, right? A lot of people put that on their profile picture. It was funny, right? Well, guess what? If you're someone in the middle ground who you're not sure how you feel about hunting, and you see this PETA organization that you don't know very much about who's saying they're trying to protect animals, and then there's all these hunters putting this overlay on it basically taunting them and <laughs> who are you going to sympathize with not the hunters so was it funny to you and i etc yeah but a lot of people did it and i'm yeah. not bashing them for doing it i'm just saying sometimes we forget that we're re representing the community and facebook's a very public platform and mm -hmm. we all look like assholes to people that don't hunt we did so uh, that's one thing that we forget about, though, and we constantly give ourselves black eyes. I haven't really thought um, about that yeah, way before. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's, yeah. You've taught us something today, Brian. <laughs> I'm glad. <laughs> I'm glad. Do that the more but, you know GIF or, you know. <laughs> yeah, I don't know the GIF, but I can do that. <laughs> it's like a rainbow. The more you know. Oh, don't put a rainbow over my head. Damn. <laughs> Damn. <laughs> It's like that now. <laughs> so I was telling Brett, like, um, we were talking about, you know, a cameraman and all the pressure they have. It's It goes two ways. Like, for the hunter, if they miss the shot, it's part of the story. Okay. If the cameraman misses the shot, if there is no story. <laughs> that could be career ending. Yeah. No, well, it could be. But to be honest, if you film outdoor TV enough, eventually you're going to make some mistakes. Mm -hmm. Um I know I've made mine, uh, the worst one I made, and it wasn't that I missed the shot. Um, and we talked about this a little bit. There's a lot 
in a cameraman's responsibility. So like your day-to-day tasks, you get back from hunting, you have to go dump footage um, and take care of all that. And I generally prefer to do that before I eat dinner. Um, This was during my 70-day turkey run stint. So I was tired. And it it was towards the beginning. Um, I was in Texas, so it was beginning of April. And I just filmed Matt Murat shoot a turkey. And we got back to the lodge, and I am dumping footage. And I don't remember if I put a card in and went and ate and came back. But what happened (laughs) was... Yeah. I just pulled a Rick there and <laughs> yeah. hit the mic. <laughs> but uh, what happened was I double dumped the same card. And uh, people out there that have no idea what I'm saying, imagine you just film something on two different tapes. So you have to di- digitize it. You have to put it on the computer, the hard drive. And you put tape number one on the computer and you went and ate dinner and then you came back, and instead of putting tape number two on the computer or card number two, you put card number one, tape number one, back on the computer a second time. Oh, that that crushed me. And I didn't know about it because I wasn't going – I was going back every now and then and watching footage and stuff like that. But we were on a fast pace at that point in time. I didn't realize that had happened until months later, like – nine months later when I was added in for the turkey season and I planned on having that in one of the episodes and I dropped it in and it just wasn't there. And then when I went through finder and looked at the files, card number one and card number two were mirrored, mm. which meant card number two never made it. Yeah. Those moments as a cameraman suck. Yeah. But you do it long enough, you're going to make some mistakes. Yeah. I was filming a snow goose hunt one time. And everything was going great. You know, the birds were coming in and coming down. And I'm like, just so excited because I have like this awesome shot. Right. But then they, they are start shooting all the birds. The birds are falling. I'm just following the camera all over them. I'm so excited. Well, after they go to pick up the birds, I realized I never hit record (laughs) for a whole volley of snow geese that fell. I didn't hit record. And I'm just like, yeah, my heart sank. I'm like, do I tell them? Am I, do I be honest? <laughs> or do I just hope that we shoot enough birds today that they won't notice? They never noticed? They never noticed. <laughs> <laughs> they never noticed. I got enough footage that they didn't even, Ooh. they don't even remember that one volley that I missed. Yeah, sometimes that happens. Um, I was very fortunate. Uh, <laughs> added in one time, there was a, a guy that came back with some footage, et cetera, and there was a whole recovery that he didn't report press record on of someone's deer um and i mean things happen man but you're better off to catch in the field and figure it out and make it good there because once you're out of the field there's no it's done it's over um but i mean those are just some of the stories you accumulate over the years they're they're not the glory ones by any (laughs) means by any means so uh after you quit filming for the the name that we shall not mention, uh, Lord Lord Voldemort, if you will. <laughs> Speaking of which, yeah. Uh, where did you go after that, man? Uh, is that when you started with so, Next? 
Yeah, that's when I started with Avian X. So that would have been right around January 17. And I was there until August 19. So that's actually their last couple seasons of television. I was working on that with a couple guys. And then we were doing um, some stuff that was going on Mossy Oak Go. Um, they were kind of episodes, not really short films, but it was just videos going on Mossy Oak Go. It's digital age, and that's where a lot of things are going now. Rather, it's on an app or on a streaming platform. It's the world of television isn't the same that it was in 2010. Mm. Um, I really enjoyed my time there doing uh, turkey hunts, doing a lot of waterfowling. So growing up, I mean, I cut my teeth on turkey hunting. Um, some of the first hunts I filmed were turkeys uh, when I was 13, 14, all the way up through high school and in college. We had way more success with that than deer hunting. But at the same time, when we were filming as teenagers then, we were also trying to manage deer and we were teenagers we didn't <laughs> own any land and everyone else that hunted the properties we were hunting were gonna shoot spike horns anyway so it really didn't matter what we did but we were we were just looking for two three-year-olds and there that was a trophy um but that was keeping you from shooting a lot of deer on film mm. but uh turkeys we didn't have that problem mm. there's plenty of two-year-old turkeys so we had a lot of success doing that and then i filmed some waterfowl hunts back then too like i said the first national tv stuff i did was uh goose hunting so i enjoyed my time there i was able to really travel the country turkey hunting um and waterfowl hunting i learned a lot about waterfowl hunting from fred zinc um mm. i mean i was into that growing up but not to the same level that those guys are and i was more into turkey hunting but the waterfowl space is content rich, in my opinion, and there's a lot of good untold stories. <laughs> and we've got one that we're going to be um, putting out this fall. Um, I'm not going to let it completely out of the bag, but yeah. I am back in the waterfowl game. Nice. nice. Um, basically, this guy has bought a private island and he is flooding it. Nice. For waterfowl. That's awesome. About 3,000 acres. Wow. Um, it is an amazing conservation story, and he plans on imprinting those ducks for three years before he might make it a duck club, he might do outfitting. I don't know what he's going to do with it yet, but I just went and filmed there in January, and it's already badass, and it's only going to get better. That's awesome. So I'm, I'm actually really excited with what that's um, going to turn into, but... There's a lot of untold stories in the waterfowl space. There's a lot of good stories, and it's a lot of fun hunting. But the turkey hunting, was that was more fun with me. Um, hunting with Matt, Josh, Hunter, those guys, I don't know if you guys are big turkey hunters, but when it comes yeah. to like the NWTF, the call-on circuit, those are the guys to be. And to be filming them, those were the same guys I was watching when I was a teenager as well on DVDs. I used to That's get the awesome. Avian X DVDs. And it, it was kind of a surreal moment and fun to be traveling with them and filming a bunch of turkeys. And we filmed a lot of good hunts, too. A lot of those you can still catch on Mossy Oak Go, I believe. Yeah, I'll have to check them out. Yeah. I mean, we, we love the turkey hunt. I don't I don't go near as much as I get to deer hunt just because the season's longer for deer, right? So, But, I mean, I love it. I mean, there's a, we got like one good turkey hunt video on YouTube, I think. Good, good, good ish. Good ish. Uh, back from <laughs> right. That was one of those 
before I think it was 2013 is when. So it's, oh, a, it's yeah, an oldie. That one. Yeah, that it's one's... an oldie. Uh, that's not the turkeys. one I was thinking, but yeah, <laughs> that, that's a better one. But yeah, we turkeys can be hard to film, man. I mean, if you're filming well with a camera, you got to move, and if you don't know how to hide right and be able to move right, you can spook a lot of them. Mm-hmm. It it takes some practice. Yeah, for sure. My biggest thing is I always had a good cover that went over my camera, my tripod. I can do a lot of my movements I have to behind that to take care of my camera. But at the same time, I a lot of guys, if you watch some old real tree DVDs and stuff like that, they showed where like they would cover themselves up with it. I would never do that. Hmm. Although I'm always communicating with my hunter, I can hear him in the headphones. They're going to tell me where the bird's coming from, this and that. Like if I can't look up with my eyes and see it and figure out where it is and then point my camera and find it in the viewfinder and go, I'm screwed. If I just have to search in the viewfinder, right. that's a recipe for disaster. Yeah. I That's one thing about filming. I always have the camera set ready to go and you have it generally pointed on your subject, your hunter. But when someone first sees an animal and it's the host and they tell you where it is, I always find it with my eyes, plan my movement, and then go. It's mm-hmm. 10 times better in my opinion. Oh, yeah. Maybe it's just what works for me. But if I'm just staring in the LCD trying to find something. Yeah, it's like a two-inch screen. It. You're like yeah. trying to you know, make sure it's in focus and all that at the same yep. time. Yeah, it's uh, definitely easier to look for the animal first. 100%. <laughs> 100%. Well, that so you guys are doing a bunch of filming on YouTube, huh? Oh, there's a few videos out there. Yeah, yeah. It's <laughs> uh, I don't know. We I messed up. Like, <laughs> go back to 2015. I messed up. I had the equipment. I had the know-how. All I had to do was start putting that content on YouTube, and said to myself, "There's no, there's no business on YouTube. No one will ever see you on YouTube. Mm-hmm. Everything right. has to be on Outdoor Channel." Uh, sportsman channel or pursuit channel the big three and i was like otherwise yep. you're not gonna make it well Jumps i was on us. i was wrong <laughs> <laughs> i was very wrong yeah, now, that is, now there's people making a lot of money on youtube oh yeah i mean it's saturated now just like every every other thing you know just like the outdoor channel was but yeah we should have been in there back then because we would have been in a better position i think <laughs> yeah well, no one has a crystal ball, and uh, things always change. Right. At the end of the day, if you're a content creator, because that's what TV show hosts are, they're creating content, they're telling a story, et cetera. Mm-hmm. If you're telling good stories, no matter where you're putting it, it's going to shine, the cream's going to rise to the top, and someone's going to want to watch. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's reality. Yeah. All you can do is just keep creating it. And if you're not good at it, how do you get better at something? Keep doing you it. do it. Like, if you played any sort of sport, guess what? When you were five years old, you really weren't that good. Your parents were lying to you. When you were 13, 14, 15, and you started to physically mature, and you started to learn a lot of your fundamentals, that's when you started to get good. The people that are pros, well, they just never stopped playing. Yeah. That's the reality of it. Yeah, that's how we kind of have broken down kind of moving forward in a, ma- in a market that is saturated. It's like you bring – well, first off, my biggest thing is quality. You know, bringing quality production to either your podcast, or your video, or both of them together, and then obviously mm-hmm. content. I mean, I, I think if you can like nail those two things perfectly, then you build it, they will come type thing. So I don't think it's ever mm-hmm. too far out of reach to attain those goals because, I mean, if if you just keep working at it and plugging away, and you know, I think it's it's within your grasp. <laughs> Where this one hundred percent well. Uh, I'll use some buddies as an example. Um, in the podcast world, 
uh, working class bow hunter at one point in time. Those were just a bunch of guys mm-hmm. that just wanted to do a podcast. Yeah. And guess what? They've been doing it for six, seven years now. It's taken off. They're the pot, one of the podcasts or the podcast to know in the outdoor space. Oh, I'd say why? Yeah, I'd say they kept the top. Why they kept doing them? They were good. Were they good at it at first? Maybe, maybe not. That's up for other people to decide. But they kept doing them, and they got better. You know, yep. you you just gotta keep swinging the bat, basically. Sacrificing so, too, you know, sacrificing. Yeah. Oh, it's time. Yeah. yeah. I mean, right now it's eight p.m. I could be sitting in the bar having a drink <laughs> or on my couch watching a movie, whatever. But instead, I'm here still in the office doing a podcast with you guys because guess what? <laughs> we we want to do a podcast because yeah. <laughs> yeah. you want to come on the Barnhill Outdoors yeah. podcast. Yeah. Absolutely, <laughs> it's just one step below Joe Rogan. That's yeah, right. Who right wouldn't want to be I'm on telling it? You, just look real close. Next time you're there, we're right underneath yeah. them. Spotify called me what? like we were wanting to, but you know Joe Rogan decided to go with yeah. us. So sorry. Yeah, so close. <laughs> next year, next year they'll next have year. a budget and they'll buy you out. <laughs> But it's the same thing. Like, if you guys wanted to do a podcast full time, you have to keep doing it and get some viewership, right. et cetera. And you guys could be doing whatever you wanted in your personal lives, or you could be doing this podcast yep. and cracking some beers here and having fun here. Either way, as long as you're enjoying it, that's the most important thing. If you're doing this right now and you're not enjoying it, well, you're not going to enjoy it 100 oh, no. episodes right. from now either. Yeah. Right. That's just the reality of that. Yeah. Yeah. We have a blast so, with it. I mean, that's the whole reason why we do it. At- if something happens of it, if it, you know, whatever, but we just really get like getting together, talking about hunting. Main, I mean, we just stuff. love to talk about hunting and then just all the <laughs> other random stuff that happens. And I really like to hear people's stories. And, uh, like you, Brian, like I, I want to hear stories of, especially people yeah. that you don't see, mm-hmm. the people that are behind the camera. Cause I mean, to me, that's just as interesting, if not more interesting than the people on camera. I agree. So Brian, after, after Avian X, where, where'd you go after that? So after AVNX, I left there August of 2019. I've been here in this dungeon at Sub 7 ever since. So <laughs> we call it a dungeon where actually our office is in a fallout shelter um, in downtown Columbus. So if anything ever happens, I'd like to think I'm in a safe space. I don't really know. But <laughs> yeah, so we spend our a lot of time down here in the dungeon um, editing a lot of outdoor television and things outside of that as well. It it keeps us busy. Um, Sub 7, when it comes to production, is obviously in the outdoor space a name to know. And for me coming here, Mark Womack's the owner of Sub 7. Well, when I was growing up, I was watching a lot of Realtree road trips, right? That was a very popular show um, back in the day. Well, Mark was one of the field producers on that. So one of the shows that kind of inspired me to do what I now do for a living, the guy that owns the company I work for was doing that show. It's just kind of full circle, which is a a really cool thing for me. Um, A lot of people look at the hosts and stuff like that as, oh, I want to go hunt with that guy. Oh, I want to go hunt with that guy. But I'm learning to produce learning uh, doing it with the guy that I used to watch do it through what he saw through the lens. Steve Finch was another producer on that and I've gotten to work with him. There's a lot of other guys um, that worked on that stuff. I'm not going to catch everybody's name, but 
it's cool to be in a position that people you were once looking at as man if I could just film like him or if I knew what they knew it's cool to now be working with those people it's really come full circle I'm very fortunate to be in that position that's awesome being here at sub seven though has offered me a lot of other opportunities when you're working on just one tv series you're learning this box right you can be creative but to an extent like we're talking about formats you're not gonna do pigman the same way you're doing swaro well being here with a production team with people that know how to do all of them you learn how to do all of them and you can really advance yourself very quickly um For every series, the first time you edit it, it's going to take you four times longer than it normally does with a show you're comfortable with. And it's going to have some headaches. It's going to take a little while to figure it out. But guess what? Once you have it figured out and mastered, you can do a lot of other things that are similar to that. And when you can edit a lot of formats as an editor, that you add a lot of value to yourself in a company. But you only get that experience by doing it. It's like we were talking with podcasts. You only get the experience under your belt of what questions to ask, what to say, et cetera, by doing it. Um, same thing with editing, same thing for filming. You're not going to film every series the same way. Um, we have uh, two other series we do, Savage Outdoors and then the one. A lot of those hunts are hunts that are filmed in the same location or sometimes they're the same hunts that go on both series but we're telling the story differently Mm. we're not lying or changing anything with the one it's a little more cinematic we have voiceover that we're doing in it um and we give more background on it savage is faster paced um it's more in the field um i want to montage yes but it's Everything you do in the field is what's driving it. You know what I mean? So you're telling the same story, but you're giving some of the same information. And and one, you're getting more in-depth information. So some people don't want to sit around and listen to some guy doing a voiceover. Some people just want to go from hunt to hunt to hunt. And some people want the background. Why are you in Illinois? What does Illinois offer? What's the rut like? Different things appeal to different people. That's the reality of it. Yeah. It's interesting because we've had that conversation before. I'm, I like the former. Like I want just get to the action, do the montage and then move on. Let's get to the next video. So I, that's, yep. that's what I like. I know. I'm not sure what you guys like, but uh, that's, I know. I, I don't really like the eight minute intros where they're just talking and I'm just like, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I want to just be in the blind. Let's start shooting, you know? There you go, Savage Outdoors Sportsman's Channel. <laughs> Just drop the plug, but go watch it. <laughs> <laughs> Will do. <laughs> yeah, and for me, I I got kind of away from all the cinematic stuff. Like it just seems so repetitive after mm. a while. It's the same music. It's the same. You know, the deer walks in with the same the beat. The you know the same song that plays every time, and like almost like a yeah. like a heart pounding. You know, and, <laughs> and I'm like, yeah. all right, you know, to, for me that just it just doesn't do it for me anymore. I want I want to be like. Just them walking to the stand for, you know, briefly, they're hunting, or if they're, you know, walking through the woods, turkey hunting, going from holler to holler, calling and striking up a bird. Like, I want to pretend like I'm just there with you rather than watching a a production show. Right. And it can, that stuff can get repetitive for sure. But if it is repetitive, I feel like someone's not doing their job and telling a different story. I like to think that we aren't very repetitive here. 
but I could be wrong. There's going to be some times. I mean, you film so many deer hunts, some of them are going to have some similarities, yeah. right? But I like to feel I, that we, especially in the show, the one and a lot of other shows, that we're giving the viewer different information all the time. Even though we may be hunting deer, et cetera, we're talking about a lot of different things and not always products, but a lot of times products as well. Um, it, it's real easy though to get into a groove where you're just going, this is what I have to do to get it done and then move on to the next one. I just don't feel like that's very prideful and Whenever I catch myself doing that, I generally kick myself in the ass. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, outdoor television's been my life for most of my life and I'm obsessed with it. So I'm not going <laughs> to, I don't know. No, if a lot of people I work with will probably support the fact that nothing's ever good enough for me. And because of that, I'm probably never going to fall on that end of the thing of doing things repetitively. Right. Or at least I hope I don't. If I do, someone call me out. I think you would have by now, to be honest with you. <laughs> as long as you've been doing it, I think you would have hit that spot. And maybe I'm wrong, but because for me, I hit that spot, and I haven't been doing it near as long as you have or didn't do it as long as you're doing it now. But, I mean, that's that's awesome that you just go to work every day and nothing's ever quite good enough and you want to tell a different story and it's not repetitive and, and you're following, you know, you're doing what you what you love. It is awesome, but if you ask the guys I'm overseeing the point that nothing's ever good enough, they're probably going to disagree with you. (laughs) That guy's foolish. (laughs) I mean, well, how do I? If you're working for someone that nothing's ever, or they don't work for me, um, if you're working with someone that nothing's ever good enough for that that can be a little negative and demeaning at times i'm hard on the guys but at the end of the day i'm trying to get the best product we can out of everything you know we're a production company and we don't want to be putting out anything that isn't of quality sure so i totally agree that's just my outlook on things yeah definitely (laughs) (laughs) i thought maybe you had a question you look like you had a question no i was just in deep thought, because oh. we were talking earlier about the preferences, I was still thinking about mine. Mm. Oh, what's your preference? Well, as far as like, oh gosh, this is twenty twenty three, and this could go bad. <laughs> <laughs> this is a hunting podcast, guys. I just like I was talking about like I enjoy a, if I watch a video, I like to see kind of the, the entire journey play out. Like if if the end is when they finally kill the animal, but I like to see them getting to that point even if it's not so you're saying you can watch a whole episode with no kill on that episode if if it's that's telling following a, the a journey story, to the story. yeah i'm, I'm kind of yeah. Yeah. on that yeah that's what i was trying to get at yeah general rule of thumb i mean if something's fallen enough if there's enough scenes it can hold your attention let's be honest we're living in a different age now than 2005 we're all stuck in these things all day long with instant satisfaction for entertainment if i'm watching television and it's slow if something's taking more than 30 seconds i'm gonna pull out my phone i'm not paying attention Mm -hmm. so i'm just gonna turn the channel um and a lot of times in the editing room like guys will hear me say things like that's a channel turner do this do that change something Mm -hmm. well a channel turner is something that it's taking too long or someone said something like this etc that means some of your viewership's gonna go, eh, next thing. And that's right. a, that's a really so, good point. Like a channel turner. That's something yeah. 
that resonated. So, yeah. Taught us something else today. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So there's um, I've kind of got a rule of thumb, and there's exceptions to every rule, especially in production, because you're in a creative field. But I've got a rule of thumb of if something is over a certain time frame, guess what? It's too long. Condense it. Now, every now and then, that rule gets broken because something needs to flow a little longer for you to really sit in the moment. For example, when we're coming up on kill shots, you, you probably want to sit in the moment, but not too long because if it takes two minutes for this deer to walk in, we're all going to go, what the heck, just shoot the thing. Yeah, right. You know what I mean? But you don't want to just have a hunter in a tree stand, five seconds later, a deer walks by, he shoots it real quick, and the whole thing takes 15 seconds, like... I might as well just watch montage videos on YouTube right. at that point. That's not, there's no storytelling in that. So rather it's a minute for some people, 30 seconds, 45 seconds. Sometimes those scenes are a minute and a half. It varies a little bit. But if you have a scene that's going on for three minutes and nothing's happening, people are going to turn the channel. Mm. That's just reality. I mean, that's most of a segment. Mm. So. So do you, I guess you probably answered this, but I wasn't computing very well. <laughs> uh, but does that, does that time frame for each, is there different, is it just generally speaking that you have like that one uh, time frame before the channel turn? Or is it like each segment, say the kill shot, say the build up, the intro, outro? Um, is it kind of like segregated into those? It's generally speaking. So it's a creative field. So I break rules all the time mm. with certain things. And when I edit something that breaks the rules... Um, I'll say to one of my guys, hey, when you watch this, you're going to see this rule is broken. But here's why. Watch how it flows. So, like, I really, when a scene's a minute and a half, for me, that is too long. But sometimes certain scenes to flow right, they have to be. Um, so it, it's a rule of thumb, but it's not, it's not law. As soon as you have rules that are law in production, watch out because now you're not being creative. Yeah. Um, right. Because I was my rule of thumb generally with podcasts, and we've already we've gone way over than normally. I usually say about 35, 40 minutes for a podcast, unless you're Joe Rogan mm -hmm. or somebody like that that does long form interviews. Generally right. speaking, you're probably going to start getting people to turn that podcast off after 35, 40 mm -hmm. minutes. That's just from what I've seen and also probably personal preference too. But. Like you said, you can always bend the rules, like in this case, obviously. So, yep. um, if, Boys, if someone listens to me for 45 minutes, we've done something. <laughs> I, I can't believe someone would actually want to do that. You'll, you'll have but, a few. Yeah. Yeah, we, got, we got a real good following. You know, like, there's, there's a few. So they'll be <laughs> Legitly, just a few. Like I said, right underneath for Joe Rogan. But no, there's nothing wrong with that. You got to start somewhere. Yeah. But um, yeah, at, at the end of the day everyone's attention span is a lot shorter than what it was. I was going to say it's gotten ago. worse. Yeah. So gotten you, worse. You, if you're not pounding information in, you, you're not going to hold them. You're not going to hold an audience. So you have to move fast. It doesn't matter if you're podcasting, doing television or YouTube. Uh, so kind of going to what you just mentioned with YouTube, have you felt since Vine and Twitter, what is it? Vine and the TikTok, TikTok and then now YouTube mm -hmm. shorts, has that really, have you seen a dramatic shift in, content at all like 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 um, what you say with the general rules of thumb Oops. yeah yes and no so uh television still gonna do it in right. a very similar form but you're you're not just a tv producer in 2023 if you are watch out you're dating yourself now television outdoor television it's gonna survive it's gonna be somewhere um outdoor channels even on hulu now it's gonna be the same people and 
some will come, some will go, but it's going to be the same people just on a different app, et cetera. In my personal opinion, right now, we've got way too many outdoor TV apps. When I go to SHOT Show or you're walking through ATA, there's a dozen apps on banners different places, and they're all on Rock U TV and this and that. And there isn't a centralized location that it's like, that's where I go to get all my app content. There's just not. Um, there needs to be. There probably won't be for right a now, long time. Right <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right now, just go do it and get all the shows together on one app and stream Pursuit Outdoor and the Sportsman's Channel and you might drive all the viewership to yourself. Now, there's going to be a lot of business and contracts to get that done. It's not going to be an easy task. But it would make it a lot easier for the viewer, the consumer, to do that if we consolidated things back down. Um, so basically, but Dish Network back- again. <laughs> <laughs> yes. right? Dish Network streaming right. device. Getting, getting back to the question, because I really didn't answer it, is the jobs changed a little bit in the sense of you also have to be producing stuff with social media in mind. Mm. Um, so a lot of times when we're doing short films, this and that, we're cutting out little sections of things that are going on social media. Um, some of our clients, we manage their social media and we're cutting out pieces of the episode and put it on there as well. Little entertaining skits. I mean, that's just part of the job now. Um, but if the content's good on TV, guess what? It's good on social media, too. Mm-hmm. Um, we just filmed a comedy thing with Jeff, Jeff Foxworthy the other night. Jeff Foxworthy is a comedian. You like his jokes on TV, you're going to like them on Facebook, too. Yep. That's just the reality of it. Good content good, is good content, no matter where it goes. Right. If it's not entertaining and it's on TV and it has a bunch of channel turners, guess what? It's the same thing as not having a thumb stopper and people are going to just keep going. <laughs> the The biggest thing on social media... When someone's going on television, they're looking for something to watch. And it's not like we're not looking for something to watch on social media, but we're in a bad habit of scrolling. And unless in that first three, four seconds you have a thumb stopper, they're just going to keep scrolling. Um, and my personal opinion, I hate the word algorithm. I think a lot of people use it just to make it sound like they know what they're talking about. But if someone scrolls past your stuff so many times, guess what? Facebook's going to stop showing it to them, and then you're going to be on a negative algorithm. That's just the reality of it. So if you get enough thumb stoppers, people are going to stop and look at it, but that content has to be good for the rest of it too. It's just – I wonder if Facebook will – pull up sub seven on my facebook next time i want it because we've been talking about it and they can hear you (laughs) yeah they can hear you it's amazing like you can be talking about anything rather it's barbecue or whatever and all of a sudden you're getting ads for it on instagram it's It's creepy creepy. they are listening they are it's it's weird (laughs) topics for another podcast (laughs) (laughs) we can dive down that wormhole but uh I'm just saying that that. that might have to be another, the next time you're on the show for that one. (laughs) If we do that, YouTube's going to limit our uh, viewership. (laughs) Probably. It's going to be their fault. (laughs) That's the reason. Mm -hmm. They're keeping us down, boys. (laughs) Shadow band. So what what was your most, you know, a couple years ago I saw, I'm pretty sure I saw you have um, like a time lapse and a bunch of really cool videos and, and photos of uh, the Aurora Borealis. The what? The, the the Northern Lights. Northern Lights, gotcha. Yeah. And 
And, I had no, uh, idea no, no. Okay, so the reason why we're laughing is because we talk about this in the last. And you have to watch it because then you'll get the why we're laughing. It's. I'll send you the, when we release the podcast before this one. I'll send it to you because we talk about the roar borealis, and I said for all you simple folk, it's 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 the Northern Lights. <laughs> the, <laughs> it just it struck us funny. <laughs> I think you're trying to pronounce auroras. Aurora is the Rory boy. Aurora, I believe, and I had. Am I? Maybe I'm the simple folk. I am simple. I, I I believe it's pronounced auroras. auroras I'm probably borealis. butchering it too. Auroras borealis. Yeah, I just know it from the I just know it from the cartoon Balto. That's the only reason why I know what the yeah. Northern Lights are. Yeah, fair enough. I remember that cartoon. It's great. It's a great movie. It's a great, great movie. Yeah. But I, I guess what I'm, I was I was really interested in that. I thought that was a really cool shot, and that's something that I would like to see. I've never seen that in person. So my question to you is, what was okay. one of your most memorable uh, adventures, whether it's filming or just sightseeing, wherever you went? Yeah, so, uh, wow, these days I'm fortunate that uh, I get to pick and choose my trips um, because of the position I'm in. I want to say I'm exploiting that, but I'm definitely <laughs> picking the good trips. Um for example, I just went out on a trip with Mike Strauff. He's one of the hosts of The One in Savage Outdoors to British Columbia, and I loved it. But at the same time, I got my ass whooped. <laughs> um, we were hunting uh, moose and mountain goat. And if you don't know much about mountain goat hunting, a lot of people don't seem like they're very interested in it. Um, it's actually as physical as a sheep hunt, in my opinion. Fortunately, that was only one day up the mountain because – I got my butt whooped. Mm -hmm. um, I was not in shape. I was sitting in this chair right here too much, edited in TV shows. And within the first hour up the mountain, I had leg cramps. And we had oh, wow. hours upon hours after that to uh, get up the mountain. And it was exhausting. Um, so we got up to the top of the mountain and we shot the mountain goat, et cetera. And the mountain goat was down in the bull on this other mountain. And I'm happy that we shot that mountain goat because when we were getting up to the top, the guide, um, I'm going to probably butcher her last name. I think you pronounce it low. It was uh, Stephanie Low, And she's a badass. She was, uh, I think it was Sheep Foundation or I think it was Wild Sheep Foundation. She was one of their guides of the year here a couple of years ago, and rightfully so. I mean, she put me to shame pretty easily. <laughs> but she she spotted a bunch of mountain goats over a couple mountain ranges, and she told me the path we were going to have to take to get to those mountain goats the next day. And I was already dying, so I um, <laughs> kind of turned to those. I was like, today, please. <laughs> But uh, And we didn't know if there was any mountain goats where we were hiking even because we had glassed that mountainside the day before and they weren't on the mountainside that we had glassed. And she knew the area well enough that she's like, well, they should be on that other mountain face. But we really didn't know until we got up there. So we got up there anyways. Long story short, um, shoots the mountain goat at like 550 yards. I mean, Mike can shoot a rifle. He's pretty solid. And it's uh, down the mountain. Um, we're on top of the mountain, and I'm in rough shape, 
right? Barely got there. And they're asking me and they're telling me like, hey, we're going down and we're going to get the mountain goat and then we're coming back up. And they're looking at me, they're looking at it and they're like, don't go down unless you think you can get back up. I'm looking at it. We're really not far from sunset, etc. And this girl's a badass. Like she plans on coming back up. But I'm looking at the host and he just started getting leg cramps too. And I'm just thinking, it's going to be dark and it's just not going to be smart. <laughs> they're going to get, they're going to get down there. And she's trying to convince me she's going to film the recovery. And she probably could have. She's a talented girl. But as an outdoor cameraman, I'm not letting anyone else film the shit I'm supposed to be filming. That's me not doing my job. Mm-hmm. And I'm just looking at it. I'm like, they're not coming back up. And I'm not getting stuck up here. <laughs> it's just not happening. So we kind of lightened the load. Um, I took some things out of my pack. I was carrying two cameras, a bunch of lenses. You know, I had to carry anything that if something had gone wrong, I could still do my job. And the camera I'm filming content on, which is the hunter, what he's saying to the guide back and forth and stuff like that. Well, that's not the camera that I'm filming the goat at. at 550 yards i've got a long telephoto lens i'm filming that with so i light my load we leave some stuff on the top of the mountain and down the mountain we go and most way down the mountain the host and the outfitter talk for a minute and they kind of decided yeah it's we're probably not coming back up tonight so anyways we get down there get to the mountain go uh do our deal filming for television um quarter of the mountain goat get it in all of our packs and we decide we're gonna go and spend the night in the tree line down in the valley so basically let's say we're camped over here this is a big mountain range here and it comes down and we're in the bowl over here um so we can walk around the valley i really liked that idea (laughs) i was not going i knew i wasn't going back up i was just hoping they were going to come to the same conclusion once we got down there so we go down the valley get into the tree line and it's dark and it's starting to rain and we had to gather a bunch of wood start a fire stay warm put a pine bough over you just because it makes you feel like it's doing something for insulation it's really (laughs) not but um that's where we spent the night uh sleep a little bit wake up when the fire's out and throw some more wood on um and then next morning get around uh the mountainside and back up to camp so that was the scenario That was so. I took some Northern Lights pictures there to get back to what got us on this topic. Um, But that's a memorable hunt, man. And uh, like I said, I'm not trying to exploit my position on picking those hunts, but I'm going to New Zealand here in a couple months. I'm really excited about that. Is it stag hunt? Yeah, red stag. So that'll be really cool. It's a beautiful country. Um, I've been. Yeah, the I'm looking forward to it. What I'm not looking forward to is when I land, the guy I'm filming's already been there for a week and he's going to be at the lodge just waiting for me. And I've got to learn how to drive on the opposite end of the <sighs> road with a rental car <laughs> and no one else is there with me. And I'm in a foreign country. It's, it's, it's going to be a fun time, but it's all part of the experience. We'll throw up a hay for so. it. <laughs> <laughs> I think you just, yeah, I think you just bring me along is what I think I heard him say. <laughs> <laughs> Well, if there's any international news about some redneck that's driving around in New Zealand and the cops are chasing him, that's this guy. <laughs> that guy. But, uh, yeah, Alaska, I, I want to go back soon. Um, I did a, a grizzly hunt in Alaska, a barren ground grizzly, um, a little ways out of Nome. 
uh, with the who we shall not mention. <laughs> yeah. um, and that was overall the hunt was a really good experience. The outfitters were great, etc. Um, very very fortunate to be able to go to some of the places we're going to do some of the hunts. But at this point in the game, I love deer hunts, but I'm signing up for all the adventure hunts because I'm checking boxes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're fun, so, especially when you're oh, there. Yeah. I mean. I've never been to Alaska, but I'm, I've been to Ontario and Saskatchewan, Manitoba. Mm-hmm. I think that's it. But Saskatchewan, for me, that was like hands down one of the coolest experiences I've ever been on. Yeah. So one of the videos, the video you were probably talking about was actually probably Saskatchewan. Um, a black bear hunt I just did there this spring. That video is actually the, the start of the intro to Savage Outdoors right now. Um, and it, yeah, it's the northern lights going over a lake with some ice on them. Um, but that was, I just did that this past spring with Mike and we got a really nice bear there at, uh, Saskatoon Island. That was a good time. I, bear hunting can be the most, uh, boring six hour, seven hour sit for the most exhilarating five minutes. But we, we actually had a really good bear hunt and saw a lot of bears. I mean, there was probably nine different bears hitting this bait site in the time we were hunting it. We we're hunting a really big bear that we saw the first night, but he just, he figured us out. Um, and once he knew kind of where the blind was, et cetera, he would, bears know you're there. That's yeah, just yeah. the reality of it. Yeah. And this bear was old enough to figure out how he can come around and see if we're in there or not. And literally when we were gone every day, immediately he was on the site. He just knew we were there. Still killed a really good bear. Um, had a, a young boar actually. So we did a makeshift ground blind around this bait site. Um, and I actually chose to film off of a tree arm versus a tripod because of how the ground blind was set up. It was just going to give me more options to be able to move my camera around and make sure I have what I need to have filming wise. And the tree arm had, I had a yellow ratchet strap on it, right? And I'm sitting up back against the tree. You know what I mean? The yellow strap's hanging down and it's kind of hanging slightly out of our brush blind. Well, at one point in time, you know, I got my headphones on, um, and I'm just sitting there staring at the bait site and I see Mike just kind of turn his head and he goes, don't move. There's a bear right behind you. I'm like, okay, shit's right behind me. He goes, it's sniffing the yellow strap. Oh no. <laughs> like <laughs> yellow strap that literally I'm kind of touching the other end of yeah, it. The, the bear, bear was right me. there a couple of feet from me, but it was just, it was just a young boar black bear checking us out and he, probably knew we were hunters and that we we're there but eventually just went around and um i think another yeah yeah I, i'm pretty sure that's the night we killed the bear and that bear had come in and they do the huffing thing the <laughs> and chase that bear off um and then came around and we had shot that bear and that was the bear we got on that trip but it was a that's not really what you want to hear that there's a bear right there. Yeah. About, yeah. about six inches from your butt. I don't know if I would have hunted on the ground next next to those bait sites. I mean, when I filmed, we were all in tree stands, but mm-hmm. I don't know if I would have sat on the ground. I mean, just <laughs> you're braver That's than scary. I am. I'm, I'm it, sure you it, get used to it, but. You do. It's a different feeling. Um, like I said, I, I'm a pretty firm believer that most of the time the black bears know you're there anyways. Yeah. But um, if you respect them. The same way they respect you, you, you'll be able to keep your distance. If you do anything dumb, if I did anything dumb in that moment, yeah, that could have been bad. Yeah. If I just 
jumped up and that was actually a sow with her cub right there or whatever and she thought I was a danger. Yeah, I probably wouldn't be talking right now. <laughs> um, the last thing you want is a sow black bear to decide that you're between it and its cub and you're a danger. Right. But uh, it was a young boar and it was just checking us out and we respected it and it respected us. And we didn't do anything crazy. <laughs> but if I had turned around real quick, I mean, I don't know. I You just... You got to be on your toes, I guess. Yeah. I filmed that hunt for six or seven days straight, and finally, the last day we were there, the last evening we were there, a bear comes in. We'd we'd pretty much got skunked like all week. We saw a couple like skirting the bait sites and a couple on the way in and stuff like that. But so finally, one's coming right in, and this thing is like twelve yards, maybe. I mean, right there, quartering away, perfect shot opportunity and he he whiffs the shot <laughs> so i i went all the way to canada to film a guy miss a bear and we had to go home the next day like, oh yeah. man oh, i mean poor marcus man. he was uh he was very upset at himself but a lot of black bear hunts are like that though not a lot of black bear hunts are you seeing a lot of black bears yeah. i mean but at the end of the day, that's part of it. But every now and then you'll get lucky and you'll be on one that there's a bunch of black bears. Um, it's it's diverse. I've done some in Saskatchewan, um, filming a little bit. I've done some hunting in Quebec, et cetera, and they're all different. It's like hunting whitetails in Texas versus Illinois versus Missouri versus New York versus Pennsylvania. It's all different. Mm-hmm. The styles of hunting are different too. Um for example, there's places you can run bears with dogs, and that's how some people do it in Maine. A lot of black bear hunts are baited. Some black bear hunts are spot and stalk. I mean, they're all different experiences. You could go on a a whitetail hunt in the Northwoods from Pennsylvania to Maine and be on a big deer drive or something. That's common there. But you go somewhere else like Illinois, and deer drives may be illegal i don't know if they are in illinois i know no, there are states that they are though yeah they're, um, they're they're not in illinois they're actually a lot of people but, still do them there yeah i was gonna say it's fairly yep. common mm-hmm. at least in the parts of illinois that we're familiar with yeah right but there are some states i believe that it is but you're how do i want to put it you're going to find a lot more tree stand hunters in the midwest than what you used to in the northeast just right. from my experience but that has changed a little bit there's more people hunting that way now hunting styles change over time it's definitely changed we've talked about that in in a lot of our shows how it's it's changed drastically i mean i've changed my hunting method um quite a bit and it's been pretty successful but i haven't gone as far as you know the saddle hunting which is real popular right now i mean just from hunting from a tree stand that's already there to basically hunting mobile hunting is what they call it and yeah i mean it's it's definitely changed just within the last five years, I'd say. Hmm. So I've actually started hunting out of a saddle the few, the the one day I bow hunted this year. But um, not being from the area here in Georgia and not having a lot of time to hunt, it's also actually been pretty difficult for me to find a lease. And um, I'm mainly hunting public land. So a few years ago, I was getting to hunt a little more. And to take a climber in and climb up the tree, et cetera, it's, 
it's a little much. It's a lot easier to take that little bitty platform, have that saddle already strapped to you, and have a couple climbing sticks and throw them around the tree. And I can get in any tree. I don't have to look for a specific type of tree. I don't know. I I really enjoy it. Um, I feel like it's a major asset compared to a climber or just trying to hang a hang on every single day. But I I was also – I don't mind hunting from the ground. I do. I like hunting from a tree, but if a setup's right, I don't mind hunting from the ground, cutting some brush, brushing myself in, and trying to shoot a deer with my bow like that. I think that's really fun. Um, it's obviously hard. You're yeah. gonna, you can spook a lot of deer doing that, but you can learn a lot about how to do that by the trial and error of it and learn what you can and can't get away with. Yeah, I actually killed my very first public land deer this last year from the ground also i had two Mm -hmm. first first bow deer from the ground and on public land so that was that's pretty cool i was pretty excited about that that's also on youtube (laughs) heck yeah (laughs) heck yeah the i feel like the public land stuff is becoming more popular which is good i mean the land's there to use and i like that people in the hunting community are coming out and doing that Mm -hmm. um i think the hunting public has a lot to do that spreading the word and there's a lot of other people doing the same thing um what i what i frown upon sometimes and it's kind of like we mentioned before of how we're giving ourselves a black eye is we're also now kind of going well you didn't kill that deer on public so it's not the accomplishment i killed mine on public like (laughs) who yeah who cares right you you went out and enjoyed yourself he went out and enjoyed himself like who cares where he killed it i don't know just there's almost a chest beating scenario there and it is something it is more of something to shoot a deer on public property especially a nice deer it's not as common but don't put down someone else's hunt because of it yeah you're becoming part of the problem at that point same with like what you're using too you know what broadheads you're using and arrows and what camo know, you're wearing yeah and like uh mm-hmm. mike waddell's a uh, a real good example of someone who's who's speaking up against that you know how hunters are fighting each other over what the best this is you know best broadhead best that she's like mm-hmm. whatever makes you happy whatever works for you just go hunting we're all we're all hunters just go hunting and mm-hmm. you know I, I, I really respected that 100 percent, and he's very right in saying that and it goes back to we fight so once a month so much amongst ourselves that it really makes us look bad to the general public um why does what someone else is doing matter to you if it's not near you what's it matter if they're not poaching and they're doing it legally who cares so like for example ohio is a state you can bait in Texas is a state you can bait in. A lot of people are going to take advantage of that and hunt over corn. Some people are going to go, that's cheating. But that's because it's illegal in their state and they can't do it. You know what I mean? If it was legal in their state, they would go, hey, I can probably do that. And there's a better chance of me getting the deer. (laughs) And then they would put corn out. It's just a lot of times people can't put themselves in someone else's shoes and go, okay, I get it. I understand it. Texas, for example, South Texas, done a bunch of whitetail episodes down there. Um, there isn't a whole lot of rain down there. So as far as like planting food plots, et cetera, it would be a lot cheaper for those guys if they could plant food plots than to buy thousands upon thousands mm-hmm. of pounds of corn. 
You know what I mean? Those guys are actually investing a lot of money in those deer herds by doing protein all summer, feeding corn, et cetera. Um, it's, it does make it seem more like a livestock, but they are wild deer. Um, but if they didn't do that, would that deer herd be there? Maybe yes, maybe no, because they've got a lot of um, vegetation there that has a lot of protein. But they're providing something that otherwise wouldn't be there. So they are bringing the carrying capacity up. And like <laughs> another thing about Texas too, like it's it's a land of high fences, right? A- anytime someone says, you know, they, they shot a deer in Texas, they go, oh, was it in a high fence? Well, generally, if you're asking that question, I'm going to ask you if you've ever been to Texas. Because it isn't a question of if it was in a high fence. It was how far was the neighbor's property that was a high fence. What I mean by that, like a lot of people don't get that, is not being from Texas, we look at high fences a little differently. We're used to like if we're talking about a high fence, someone's got a 50-acre high fence that they're bringing exotics in Mm -hmm. and people are shooting them, which that has its place too. Those people are conservationists. Even if your everyday hunter doesn't understand that, they are conservationists, and there's a place for that stuff. Um, but in South Texas, there's some of these places that are high fence that are 300,000 acres of high fence. That's a and lot guess of what? I don't want to get political, but with the way the border is right now, those high fences have holes in them because they're getting mashed through every day. Um, I know some people down in those areas, and there's literally um, – other human beings that are coming through and driving vehicles through their fences. Mm-hmm. And when their vehicle stops running, they just leave it and they keep walking. That is something that's happening right now. But anyways, you're we're looking at high fences as animals not being wild. But when it's 300,000 acres and that high fence was, yes, put there to keep things in or keep other things out, how tame do you really believe they can be? Or even at 5,000 acres. Um, if, okay, if they're bringing deer in under a, I'm trying to remember what Texas calls it. it might be DMAP. I don't remember. I don't want to get it wrong. But if they're bringing deer in under a program where they're bottle feeding them and raising them that way and releasing them, then I get it. But just because there's a high fence somewhere doesn't mean that. So you can literally be, in my opinion, hunting somewhere in South Texas and, the property you're on may not be a high fence property, but you go however miles that way or however many miles that way, there is a high fence somewhere. It's just a matter of how far. Right. It could be 10 miles. It could be five. It's just high fences are how they fence in South Texas from my observation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've never – I mean, you go to Texas quite a bit. Yeah. Have you noticed any – I no, my wife's from Southeast Texas. She lives by Corpus Christi. Her uh, family gotcha. does. Yeah, mm-hmm. I haven't seen. Granted, that's Southeast. Uh, just normal ranches. That's really all mm-hmm. we see. But again, it's a lot. It's sandy down there, so there's really not a whole lot of. I mean, vegetation. It's not. I mean, it's the Texas. When you think of like the desert vegetate vegetation vegetation <laughs> vegetation down there, it's just kind of like the the weird uh, droopy trees and the. And the, the old droopy trees. Yeah, the old dro- that's what I call them, the droopy trees. They're just they're very distinct looking. Anyway, so no, I haven't actually seen any from my. Gotcha, gents. Do you guys have anything else to ask, Brian? No, man. But I I really appreciate you coming yeah. on the show for real. It's been no problem. It's been a blast. It's good to catch up with you. I mean, it's been almost ten years ago now. So 
it's it's been a few years. Um, <laughs> glad to see while. you're doing well. If and, you're ever in Missouri, uh, let us know and yeah, we'll. Uh, Oh, absolutely. Show you around. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll get, <laughs> <laughs> Where are you guys in Missouri? Uh, by St. Louis. St. Louis area. Okay. Yeah, St. Louis yeah. area. Um, gotcha. But yeah, come on. Ferg- Ferguson area? <laughs> yeah. 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 We're a uh, backyard. No. <laughs> no, we're we're out outside. Northwest. Yeah. But, Fair enough. Uh, if, if you come out this way, give us a call. Maybe I'll get you on a, on a hunt or something like that. Yeah, yeah that'd be awesome. Well, boys, I enjoyed it. I think we should probably do it again sometime. Yeah, yeah, I'm, yeah, for real, I, I'd love to. If you're I, if you're wanting to, that's <laughs> that's nice well, to hear you say that. <laughs> I think there's more I could talk about, but when I listen back and hear my voice, I'm going to go, man, you shouldn't talk. <laughs> <laughs> We've had to go through that process too. We're yeah. just still we're like, going through it. Yeah. Kind of like, get used to listen, it a little bit, but I still I'm like you. I don't really like the sound of my voice. So I, I hate my voice. Don't know why it. we do podcasts. I'm kind of dreading this video because my mom always said I had a face for radio. <laughs> So, uh, gotcha. when I see this video, I'll be like, Ooh. So, you're saying we're just going to zoom in on the other guys and not see a whole lot of you? Yeah, just or blur me out. It's going to be you the whole time. Didn't have a memory card yeah. Oh, we're doomed then, boys. <laughs> All right. Well, Again, with, man, appreciate it. Appreciate it. With that, uh, we'll let you go um, next time, man. We look forward to it. Yep. Sounds good. Take care, brother. See you.